Welcome to the community-supported Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Ring of Fire, Countdown with Keith Olbermann, The Sam Cedar Show, The Young Turks, and On the Media. Our democracy is broken, and the things that we need to do to fix it, there's really, there's three things. One is campaign finance reform. We need to get corporate money out of our campaign finance system. We had that law federally before. We have it still in many states. And, you know, even Barry Goldwater said corporate money should have nothing to do with politics. Bobby, don't you think public financing is the only solution that the dribs and drabs of McCain-Feingold really aren't going to solve it? I think I think you're right on that. I think you know, uh, public financing is ultimately the only solution that's going to work. Number two, we need to fix the media. If we don't fix the media, if we don't make sure that the electronic media, which is owned by the public, starts providing real information that is critical to us making decisions in our political process, rational decisions, it really doesn't matter because without an informed public, you cannot have a democracy that functions. And what the mainstream media says, we don't need that kind of regulation anymore because we have the Internet and people have plenty of opportunities to get any information they want from the Internet. The problem with that is, one is, you don't know how to judge. There's no way to judge. There's no FCC looking over the Internet's shoulder saying this information is good and this is bad and there's no idea about the quality of information and we don't want that right well right uh, right on the internet we don't but uh, with the electronic media which is owned by the public and which is limited we definitely do number two um people go to the internet essentially to reinforce their worldviews so if you're progressive you may go to the huffington report if you're right wing you go to the drudge report and the information that you tend to get tends to polarize the public. And what we need if we are going to have a functioning democracy and a functioning sense of community is one repository where the truth is accessible and where it's been vetted. Fact-based information. Fact-based information that is critical to us making rational decisions in our democracy. So we need to bring back a strong FCC. A good president can do that even without legislation. The laws are already in place to allow a strong president who understands these issues to actually do that. To, well, Bobby, to, it was Reagan that actually undermined it in 86. Reagan right. was one of the first In 1988, presidents. that's right. He destroyed the Fairness Doctrine. But, you know, Clinton also hurt us because he allowed these, you know, with the reform of the Telecommunications Act, he allowed this huge consolidation of the media, which has been very, very damaging. So we need to now elect a president who understands this and who's going to strengthen the FCC. After the 2004 elections, and I remember this vividly, Kerry lost narrowly. You've now gone back and done the work to show that had the votes been counted fairly, Kerry would have won in Ohio and would have been president. I remember calling you, and I was really despondent. I was really down. And I said, what is wrong? What can be done? And the very first thing you said was you've got to read a book by David Brock about the media and about the right-wing noise machine, and it's as true today as it was two years ago. People need to understand the degree, the degree to which that right-wing noise machine frames everything we understand about our politics. And until that's fixed, the point you've just made, elections almost can't matter because they will be defined on the terms of this right-wing noise machine. Well, now, Bobby, course... I've got to ask you, you're friends with Roger Ailes, and, and I've always wanted to ask you this question because you actually did something that moved Roger Ailes to do something socially responsible on the issue of global warming. But you 
watch what Roger Ailes has achieved by building Fox News, a network that is not fact-based, it is opinion-based information. It's uh, a propaganda. It's a propaganda machine. It has nothing to do with the news. Have you ever had that discussion with him? And 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 how is it, how can they defend this? Is my question. Well, I I have had that discussion with him, and what he says is that Fox News is fair and balanced. And he said, we have as many Democrats working for us as Republicans. And he says this straight to my face. And, you know, I Does he believe say, it or... <laughs> well, I, I don't know deep in the recesses of Roger's mind whether he believes it or not. But, I, you know, I think he knows what he's doing. You know, part of his defense of what he's doing is that he's not doing it. So, uh, I, you know, right. I I have very entertaining conversations with Roger Ailes but on the subject of Fox News. And, I, you know, he's very much aware that I'm a critic of Fox News. And he occasionally will send me a note saying, you know, come and get us. holding the public's attention, beloved by both the Bush administration and, just as another example, Fox News Channel. Step one, fear. And if step one does not work, step two, more fear. In our fourth story in the countdown, it is also evidently how the producers of the Fox series 24 plan to keep viewers during the show's sixth year, as evidenced in the first 30 seconds of the season premiere. America has been victimized again. Last night's terrorist attack in San Antonio was now the latest in this series of bombings that began 11 weeks ago in 10 different cities. Over 900 people have been killed thus far. And while no one is claiming responsibility for this wave of death, evidence points to Islamic militants. Here in Los Angeles, the mood can only be described as tense and fearful as the Department of Homeland Security is urging all citizens to report without delay any suspicious persons or activities. We spoke with a department spokesperson who says, quote, we don't want to start a witch hunt, but we would rather err on the side of caution than become the next target. If that wasn't enough to scare or outrage you, the rest of the four-hour, two-night show opener featured a mall attack, a would-be suicide bomber on a subway, and a successful suicide bombing on a passenger bus. Not in places where these things have already happened, but in a country called the United States of America. In case you missed the point, the show finished up with a nuclear weapon detonating in a major American city, city literally conjuring up the administration's imagery for the war in Iraq, the good old mushroom cloud. Right-wing websites leaving no doubt as to what they think viewers should take away from this fictional attack. Case in point, uh, newsbusters.org says this scene, quote, should be required viewing for all media members who question what's at risk and whether there really is a war on terror and accuses the media of undermining the Bush administration and, quote, downplaying the seriousness of terrorism. Four more out there. At least the rest of us didn't make it into a sitcom. And by that logic, of course, somewhere in this country, there really is a cheerleader who will never die. There's at least one real-life talking dog and a mother and a daughter who patter back and forth like the Gilmore Girls. 
Is 24 propaganda, is it fear-mongering, or is it a program-length commercial for one political party? I'm joined now by Robert Greenwald, who made the documentary film Outfoxed. Thanks again for your time tonight, sir. Thank you. Nice to be with you. Most people obviously recognize the show's fictional, but how well does the fictionalizing of seemingly actual terror events like subway and bus bombings and uh, sort of templating them over the United States landscape work as a, as a fear tactic? Well, we know how susceptible people are to fear, some of it with good reason. The tragedy, as we know, has been how this administration has played on people's fears and how Fox News and Fox in general has used it over and over and over again. As you say, people can tell the difference. This is fiction. What we're dealing with in the world at times is fact. You know, of course, the question is, can this administration tell the difference, given that every day we get a different reason about who we should be afraid of? of why we should be afraid and why we went to war. And the old line, of course, uh, seems to apply here about people insisting TV does not impact the public's perceptions. And then you point out, well, gee whiz, all those advertisers must have wasted every dollar they ever spent on television. But if the, if the irrational right can claim that the news is fixed to try to alter people's minds or that networks should be boycotted for nudity or for immorality, uh, shouldn't those same groups be saying 24 should be taken off TV because it's naked brainwashing? Yes, well, I don't think those groups have ever talked about brainwashing, but it's a very good point because I think one of the most devastating things that, that has happened with that show has been the narrative that torture works, where over and over again they show that there's this ticking bomb scenario, which is a false idea to begin with, right, that you have one second to get X information to save all these people lives, and the only way to solve it is by torturing somebody. We've seen the results of torture. It doesn't work and you get false information. And that's where the show and other shows like it really do a disservice because they affect a kind of narrative and a, a way that people throughout the country start to believe, yeah, well, I really don't like torture, but I better use it because it's the only way to save my country. John McCain did a cameo in the series and joked about torture afterwards. Senator Cornyn has now done a, a promo on Fox News about this series. And, of course, there was the Love Fest at the Heritage Foundation last year starring the producers, some of the actors, Secretary Chertoff from Homeland Security, and comedian Rush Limbaugh. I mean, we've had lines between reality and TV blurred before. There's a whole alternate, uh, alternate universe quality to the West Wing. But does this not begin to look at this point like the blurring of the lines here is deliberate? Well, it certainly seems to be that way. And, of course, when you have uh, the vice president and the former secretary of defense saying this is their favorite show, it does give you pause to wonder about what really is going on here. Now, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but, of course, the fact that the show is on Fox uh, raises all of our eyebrows. Now, having said that, you know, there's some very good execution in this show, and that's what makes the sort of moral questions that you're asking even more important and more important that people tell the difference and that we raise hell when they cross a line that shouldn't be crossed, blurring the fact with the fiction. Is there some tangible way that this could actually help a, a president who has relied, who has campaigned on, you know, our party will protect you and the other guys, well, you're on your own? 
Well, I don't know what's going to help this president, given where his ratings are. I don't know that an angel coming down would save, uh, save him right now. But I think any time that one is using fear to create a concern among the electorate, to create a concern in our country, and to motivate and push people and say, you better be afraid, you better be very afraid, the more we keep hearing that message, I think the more we need to push back against it and ask the hard questions. Maybe touched by an angel can make a comeback, as you just suggested it. Uh, Robert Greenwald, maker of the uh, documentary Outfoxed, thank you for joining us tonight, sir. Pleasure. American democracy. The first of those is campaign finance reform. The second is media reform by strengthening the FCC. And Bobby, so the third thing was well, the third thing the mechanics is, uh, of the election. Yeah, the third thing is just the mechanics. You know, the the fundamental assumption of American democracy is that everybody can vote and everybody is going to have their vote counted. That assumption is no longer something that we can rely on. And you know, one of the big issues this time, David, which I can't believe there's not more of an outcry about this, but the one way to verify the integrity of the electoral process is through exit polls. And our government helped pay for exit polls that brought down the government of Edward Shevardnadze in the Soviet Republic of Georgia, which yep. you know Bush demanded that he step down because the exit polls disagreed with the final tally, and it was assumed that the final tally was therefore fraudulent. Well, the same thing happened in the Soviet, former Soviet Republic of the Ukraine. Um, they had to have another election, didn't they? Right. And all over the world, exit polls, which are scientific and are deadly accurate, if they're done correctly, are the measure, the independent measure, of whether an election is honest. Well, during the 2004 election, all the media companies, the major media, including the New York Times and all of the networks, pulled their resources to create the most extensive exit polls in history. Those exit polls that showed that John Kerry resoundingly won the 2004 election. But instead of then releasing the raw data to the public, the networks took the position that um, the tally was right and their exit polls must be wrong. And so they hid the raw data and they have refused to release it even to their own reporters. And even to a congressional committee, they resisted the subpoenas. This is Edison so, Makovsky, is that right? Right. And Warren Matovsky died a couple of months ago, the pollster who was doing those polls. And, you know, he was kind of forced to stand up beforehand and say, oh, there must have been something wrong with the exit polls. And he created this theory called the reluctant responder hypothesis, saying that the reason we were wrong is that Republicans are reluctant to talk to the exit pollsters. Right. Well, that, as it never turns happened. out, is not true, because a subsequent analysis was done that proved the Republicans were actually slightly more willing to talk to pollsters than Democrats. So the explanation that the networks had about why the exit polls didn't work 
is wrong. It has been proved wrong. So the you know the best supposition is that in fact the exit polls were correct, but the, the final tallies were wrong. And if you look, you know, at the states where there was not much of a contest and where there was none of the other indicia of corruption, states, for example, like Utah, the exit polling agrees 100% with the final tally. It's in only the, in the close races. Right. And in the precincts where there were hand-counted paper ballots, the exit poll exactly predicted the results of those elections. It was only in the states and the counties where there was other indicia of fraud where there was secretaries of state who were partisan and where, you know, uh, people on the ground were saying, hey, the bad things happened to me. You know, I, I pulled a carry lever and it, it lit up for Bush. It was only in those precincts where the exit polls dramatically disagreed with the final tally. Bobby, we've so, got an election okay, on Tuesday. I, right. Now, on Tuesday, here's what's happened. Here is the crime that nobody's talking about, David. Last week, the networks announced that... This year, they will release none of the raw data to the public of their exit polling. In fact, they're not even going to give it to their own reporters. And so, you know, they have become part of this conspiracy to fix these elections and then cover up the fixing. And, you know, that's something people should be screaming from the rooftops about. Well, we're doing you know, why, it here. Why is it that the, that the networks, which are constantly demanding that other people reveal their deepest, darkest secrets... <laughs> are hiding from the American a public a poll in the day of the Internet when everything gets up on the Internet, and they're not going to give out their poll to the public. Bobby, you know outrageous. you know some of these folks well. I mean, Tom Brokaw, for example. Uh, these are people that you've known, you've known for, for many, many years. Have you put these questions to them directly? Why are you doing this? Why is this happening? Well, you know what happened is the, the, the interesting thing is that after the 2000 election, you know, the polls in Florida had predicted Gore to be the winner. And so the networks went on the air and said he was going to win. And then they reversed it and said that Bush was the winner. It later turned out that the exit polls were correct. Gore had won the election by the margins that the exit polls predicted. So they were right. But it kind of got embedded in the institutional culture of the networks and the news organizations that exit polls can no longer be relied on. Then 2004 happened, where the exit polls predicted Kerry the winner, and Bush ended up winning. And they, again, the position taken by the networks was, okay, well, the exit polls must have been wrong. So now, if you talk to Tom Brokaw, he'll say, I'll never rely on exit polls again. They're all wrong. But in fact, the exit polls were right. It was the tally that was wrong. Maurice Hinchy represents New York's 22nd Congressional District. Uh, he plans to reintroduce the Media Ownership Reform Act. Uh, welcome to the program, uh, Congressman. 
Well, thank you very much, Sam. Nice to be with you. Now, uh, tell us about uh, the Media Ownership Reform Act. Uh, tell, tell my audience why it's such an important piece of legislation. Well, it's, it's important because uh, a free and open information distribution system in our country is a, a basic part of the democratic process. And it's a fundamental necessity to maintain it if we're going to maintain this democratic republic. If you have an information distribution system that is controlled by a handful of people who use it in whatever way they want to and provide as little information that they can or provide all of the information from one particular perspective, then you've got a circumstance where people are not getting the kind of information they need. And if you can control the information that people receive, then you can control the ideas that they have. And that's what's been going on with uh, our media to some extent going back to 1987 when the Federal Communications Commission under the administration of Ronald Reagan eliminated the so-called fairness doctrine from the uh, FCC rules. The fairness doctrine, or sometimes called the equal access clause, stipulates that no one owns the broadcast network, that that broadcast network is owned by the American people, not by any individual. And if you are licensed to broadcast over a portion of that spectrum, you have to do so in a responsible, open, and fair way. And if you have a political point of view or other points of view, you have every right to express them. But if others in the area to which you are broadcasting have alternative or different points of view, then you have to provide some opportunity for those alternative or different points of view to be expressed. Now, this this works. I mean, we had it up until uh, 1986 or 87, uh, so it, I mean, it, it clearly can work. But l let me ask you this now, and because this is the thing I think that people don't realize, is that we do own, when we're talking about over-the-air broadcasts, whether it's television or uh, radio, this is part of our asset as taxpayers, as citizens of this country. Would this apply to uh, cable systems? Well, it does in the sense that um, ownership of information distribution systems ought to be um, regulated and limited to some extent. So the legislation that we have introduced last year and are reintroducing now would restore um, what we call the broadcast cable and broadcast satellite cross-ownership rules. And the purpose of that is to prevent a single company one single corporation from having conflicting ownerships in a cable company and at the same time a satellite carrier, broadcast station, uh, things of that nature that offer service in the same market. It's important to have different perspectives and different points of view. You do not want one corporation to control all the information that people are getting no matter where they may be inside the United States. Right. I mean, if you have, uh, you know, a half a dozen channels that you're looking at and they're all owned by the same person, you're only going to get one perspective on this. That's exactly right, and that's what we need to guard against. We don't have that situation yet, but we have a, a circumstance that has definitely been moving in that direction. You have uh, a couple of corporations, for example, that control, own and control most of the radio stations in the, in the country. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a situation where you get the, the, the same kind of broadcast over and over again to people all across the country from the same place and opinions with the same point of view. You don't get the diversity that we need. And this is also going to help, uh, I believe, I mean, I think one of the, one of the, uh, the, the sort of the, the tangential benefits of this is going to increase 
local ownership and control of uh, some of these broadcast outlets as well. Well, that's exactly right. Uh, local ownership and control is is very important. And uh, we have, let me just give you a quote that I, I really appreciate. It's from the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court has said this kind of thing over and over again for many, many decades. This one goes back 60 years. Supreme Court declared in a in, in an issue where one broadcast network was trying to over to, trying to take over uh, other broadcast networks in a very uh, uh, way that would uh, tie things up very very tightly. The Supreme Court in that decision said the following: I quote, "The widest possible dissemination of information from diverse and antagonistic sources is essential to the welfare of the public." Mm that a free press is essential to the condition of a free society. So that, that I think, is a very succinct sentence that really stipulates this uh, situation in a very, very clear way. And, 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 it, and I would point out, too, that, I, that, that what the Supreme Court is making clear there is that a free press is not simply defined by no governmental control. A free press is defined by the nature, by the notion that it can actually be uh, uh, run by di- a varied amount of people. Uh-huh. That's and, exactly right, and it should be run by a varied amount of people, not the way it is today. Today, you have a situation where just five corporations own the broadcast networks. Ninety percent of the top fifty cable networks, they produce. See, I don't. I want to stop there just for a moment because I think people don't realize this. They they say, "Well, I got 150 channels or 200 channels on my cable." They don't realize there's a, it's the same companies that own all these things, and it affects their programming quality. Uh, in addition to affecting their news, uh, there are all sorts of licensing rights, and so they narrow the type of entertainment that you can get because it's a function of what's going to be best for their bottom line. Uh, I, I don't think people realize that. No, that, I think you're absolutely right. They don't. Very few people realize that that kind of situation exists. And because that, that exists, what those uh, same five corporations do is that they, they produce 75% of all the primetime programming that people see. Mm. And they also control 70% of the primetime television market share. So you, you, you see, that's the circumstance. One-third of America's independently owned television stations have just dropped out of existence since 1975, and that process continues. All right, Congressman, we, we don't have much time. We're going to have to have you back to talk about this more. But uh, for right now, what can, what can our audience do to help support uh, your introduction of this legislation and to help th- to get this legislation passed? Well, I hope that they would support the Media Ownership Reform Act. They can find out about it if they want to by going to uh, our uh, n- network station, you know, the the, uh, the blog that we have out there mm-hmm. from the from the uh, congressional office, and get a get a uh, description and a summary of it. It's the Media Ownership Reform Act, and what it does is basically two things. Does, does them broadly, and there's a lot of description about how it goes about it, but it does two things. It reinstates the fairness doctrine so that everybody has equal access to the broadcast system, and it uh, restores broadcast ownership limitations. And uh, it requires that people who own broadcast stations carry out their ownership in a way that is responsible to the needs of the communities that they're serving. Well, uh, Congressman, I, I can't thank you so much for joining us, and I, and I can't thank you enough 
for for introducing this legislation or go, or uh, planning to introduce this legislation, it is crucially important. We have seen what happens when a media that is uh, dominated by one perspective uh, controls this country. It leads us into things like Iraq. a little fun. He's talking to Andrea Mitchell, um, who's married to Alan Greenspan. Totally irrelevant at this point, but I love to mention that. Uh, she's from NBC News, and he's putting her on the hot seat. Oh, listen, you come on this show, uh, you know, we're going to ask you the tough questions. And he's accusing NBC of being liberal. Let's see how the interplay works here. Bill O'Reilly. I so you think that they, were, they have it in for it? Like, I have it no, in for NBC, I... I'll admit it. I don't like you guys. I like you. <laughs> I like well, the Today Show. But I think your management is made a conscious business decision to go to the left. That's just not true. I, that's my opinion, based upon reams of material. But Sorry. anyway, <laughs> you've been 30 years at NBC. Anyway. Can you tell me one conservative thinker at NBC News? Scarborough. Con- how do you define conservative? You know, traditional values, maybe supports. Are you talking uh, about commentators? Are you talking about news? Anybody. Give me anybody. Is there anybody over there who's conservative, well, think, in your I opinion? Think, yes, I think there are a lot of people give me who one. are privately conservative or privately Scarborough. Give me one. I, we don't judge ourselves by Pat how Buchanan. we approach the news. We okay, I just, news I just look at all your on-the-air talent and in Today Show, and I love those guys, all right? <laughs> they're all liberal, every one of them. I disagree. All right? <laughs> They'll admit they're liberal, Andrea. Really? When? I, have you asked Lauer and Vieira and Ann Curry? And they'll admit they're liberal. I've never and when Katie was there, she admitted she was liberal. Really? Come when? On. That's, I've never read that's that. not the way we approach the news. But that's who they are. They, they they're journalists, that's, they that's true. And you're entitled to your public uh, and private beliefs. You are. And I don't have any quibble with that. Really? But if it's all one way... <laughs> I hate, can we stop it for one second or can we not stop it? the board, then I'm saying, where's the diversity? I strongly disagree. In fact, we are attacked. Uh, but you can't it. tell me one we, conservative we, thinker. I, I can't tell you one liberal thinker. We are attacked. You can't. Liberal, uh, it's Chris Matthews. We, Chris Matthews. Oh, please. What? He is yeah. on MSNBC. He's, and no, no. He's on a Today Show and on the nightly news. He's your main political as a, commentator. As an he's analyst. Tip yeah. And I wouldn't and call he's a him, liberal thinker. I don't think he's a liberal thinker. He's not? He worked in, for Tip O'Neill. How much more liberal can you get? He oh, worked for, the, for Tip O'Neill how many years ago? I don't think he's changed his bar. Well, I'm giving I, you way too the, much of a hard time. No, but, and I, no, and th- I apologize. It's I not your fault. I don't think that it is fair to describe journalists as liberals I or conservatives. I do. Because I think that it's filtered through a prison. I hate him with a fiery passion. My God. And, you know, and, 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 and then when people like you, Jank, are like, you know, O'Reilly, he's sort of, you know, where he's coming. I can't. He, because the argument that I hate most is the straw man of. People are entitled to their own beliefs. I don't have a quibble with that. Of course. 
course you don't have a quibble with that. That's who the whole quib- point of the segment. Who quibbles with that? <laughs> no, no, no. But then the whole point of the segment was that he actually has a no, gigantic well, quibble no, with you, it. You are quibbling with it, and you don't get to act sort of fair and balanced by saying, I don't think people should be heads should be chopped off in the street. I don't have a quibble with not chopping off people's heads. <laughs> no, uh, I I really disagree with you. I think uh, O'Reilly is venomous. I th- I think he's like one of those snakes that you don't like in the zoo, right? Uh, I think he's sm- unlike a lot of the other conservative hosts and uh, politicians. He's smart uh, and he's dangerous. Okay, but I think the guy's entertaining. People say that about Rush Limbaugh all the time, and I just don't get it, man. I that guy well, I bores me to tears. I don't deny. And that people much. are like, oh, you know, he talks about stuff more than politics. Really? No, he doesn't. He only all he does is talk about really, really boring conservative politics. Now O'Reilly, this guy's a showman, man. Like he's like I mean he's on there and he's like and he's like a snake too with the head and he's rolling back and forth and he's like so uh, name a liberal thing. Go ahead, do it. Do it. He's like he's a parody of himself. The whole thing's entertainment, man. It's great. Right, but I don't... And then he's like, No, no, I'm being unfair to you. She's like, No, it's okay. No, it's not. <laughs> I'm being unfair to you. I apologize. Now let me hit you one more time. No, look, I've said many times <laughs> on the show that I think uh, conservatives uh, should not be locked up. I don't have a quote with it. <laughs> I, I think that they can speak their mind in America. No, I, I, he's a, he's really great at this. There's no uh-huh. question. I don't think it's entertaining. I think it's uh, it's hideous. But I get that he's talented at it. I, I can't. It's undeniable. But, I mean, watching it is the almost the worst thing I can watch. I mean, but I disagree. I mean, I agree with you. I mean, Limbaugh is... Uh, you know, mind-numbingly dull, and O'Reilly's not dull, but I just think it's uh, it, it is so deliberately deceitful. And you're right, he's a showman. But I, I you know, first of all, I'm not a big fan of showmen. And he's, and it, and he's, Ben, Ben, you're wrong. You're retarded, and you're hurting the country. You're working with Osama bin Laden. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. I should. Okay. <laughs> no, but if I could just get a second to defend myself. Okay, I know, but you're like I'm on. I was well here. Uh, shouldn't have done it. But anyway, you are Chris and- Matthews, by the way, liberal. Please, has he ever heard Chris Matthews? No, I'm sure he has. Okay, Chris Matthews worked for Tim O'Neill like 88 years ago. Look, Chris Matthews is the guy. I mean, we say it over and over because it was just so shocking. He said to Bush's face. Should go on Mount Rushmore because oh. the Iraqi elections worked so well. I mean, I mean, this guy was so busy under Bush's desk during the times that Bush was in power and everybody liked Bush and it was popular to like Bush. Chris Matthews was like, huh, only the. In fact, Chris Matthews said only the wacky liberals don't like George Bush. That's a, a yeah. I mean, so that guy's liberal? Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it, and when did, it, right, that's exactly right. I mean, and he did work for Tip O'Neill, which is one of the frustrating things about Chris Matthews. Yeah, of course. Uh, you and, know what, by the way, Richard Pearl worked for a Democrat. He worked for, he was a chief assistant to Scoop Jackson in, in Oregon. And Richard Pearl is uh, the the biggest neocon warmonger in the country and ran uh, Rumsfeld's defense policy board, advocated attacking Iraq, and now advocates attacking Iran. Hey, we're, we're a Democrat. He's a liberal. Two things He's on, a liberal. Uh, whoa, 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 whoa. Joe Lieberman frequently uh, invokes the name of Henry Scoop Jackson as the good old days when the Democratic Party was tough on national security. Um, Scoop Jackson was an ass. Yeah, Scoop Jackson was an ass. Um, uh, by the way, the uh, 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 Pete Williams, who was the Pentagon correspondent for NBC, was the uh, uh, Pentagon spokesman, Defense Department spokesman uh, for Reagan, and I believe then lapping over into Bush, too, uh, certainly for, for Reagan. So Pete Williams, by the way, is a conservative. And, and I... And a, and a, when I see him, a fine reporter. I, but I mean, there, there's one. I don't remember when Ann Curry or or uh, or Matt Lauer uh, came out and announced they were liberals. Meredith Vieira has taken positions that 
pretty clearly put her in a progressive camp. Mm-hmm. But I don't remember anything about Matt Lauer or Ann Kerr, and I certainly don't think when O'Reilly says, as if everyone knows it, they'll tell you. They'll say it. They've said it. They've said it. They've no, said they it. Haven't. No, they have. They have. They have. You deny that? Okay, never mind. <laughs> no, he just makes it up. Absolutely makes it up. And Andrea Mitchell was so unprepared. Yeah, I'll I mean, make... look, dude, he's asking about the NBC family. He mentions uh, Chris Matthews on MSNBC. It's Joe Scarborough, Tucker Carlson, Pat Buchanan. These are all hosts or commentators on MSNBC. You're telling me you can't name any of them? And O'Reilly, and of in course. In fact, I can't name you a liberal on MSNBC or NBC. Well, now I can. Over me. And that's why O'Reilly hates MSNBC. Just uh, astonishing. She writes in the uh, World Net Daily, uh, this uh, right-wing uh, website, a collection of uh, fringe and marginal uh, people with limited intellectual capacity about the dangers of the far-left political ideologies, which are being promulgated through ever-increasing mediums. And recently, she writes, I noticed that a once vaunted American television network, the Weather Channel, had succumbed to the cancerous spread of liberalism. That's right, folks. The weather is now liberal propaganda. All of these liberals, with their weather-changing machines, changing the weather to make you believe that global warming is real. She's cracked the code, folks. The brainiac that is Melanie Morgan. I wonder what her real name is. Who wants to bet that's not her real name? I bet you it's something really embarrassing to her. Mabel? No, no, no. I'm not talking about a first name. <laughs> uh, what had been nice about the Weather Channel, she writes. I mean, God, I wonder how much she gets paid to write this piece. Because this really feels like one of those things like, oh, God, what am I going to write? Sweetheart, does the Weather Channel seem liberal to you lately? I don't know. I just feel like the weather's been so liberal. It's raining a lot. Isn't that just like the liberals? What had been nice about the Weather Channel is that through most of its history... does, Does the Weather Channel have this vaunted history... I mean, is this one of the great institutions of America that she's sitting here lamenting? I remember when we were kids. 
And Ma and Pa would say, come and get it, kids, come and get it. We're all going to sit around the television box and watch the Weather Channel. Oh, those family times. All the hurricanes were in black and white back then. <laughs> oh, gosh. Remember the Weather Chasers? Oh, what had been nice about the Weather Channel is that through most of its history, it stayed clear of political propaganda. Hmm. And focused on delivering weather forecasts to the nation, supplemented with riveting live reports from the front lines of hurricanes, winter blizzards, and springtime floods. But no more. The Weather Channel is now engaged in a con job on the American people. Attempting to scare the public that their actions are destroying the planet by creating a global warming crisis. Oh, boy. The Weather Channel is launching a new website and broadband channel dedicated solely... Global warming and witchcraft and gayness called One Degree and has a weekly program called, if you can believe it, The Climate Code, devoted almost entirely to liberal advocacy on climate matters. Now, uh, presumably, that is to, I mean, if we're to believe the right-wing media, that's to turn the climate into gay people, right? To allow gay climate to marry. Gay tornado marriages. It's a, it's a short hop, skip, and a jump Sweet to that. Lord, please, don't bring that up. I find that image disgusting. Hot tornado on tornado action. I just, not at this time of the day, for God's sakes, Isaac. The global warming crowd. Which, where, where is that crowd? Now, well, most people would refer to the global warming crowd as rational, sane human beings who appreciate science to be real. Or just people. The crowd. You know, the global warming crowd. Those people who, who believe in things like gravity. And the, the earth is, is, is round crowd. Beatniks. Beatniks! <laughs> Beatniks in their lab coats. With their slide rulers in their pockets. And their Beatnik Coke bottle glasses. And their Beatnik hippie test tubes. These scientists, or what I call wizards. Led by arrogant hustlers such as Heidi Cullen at the Weather Channel, has set up a no-lose situation for themselves. I mean, just what what is going on in the demented brain that sees people who want to uh, uh, the American public to understand that there are certain things that we can do to decrease the chances of global warming catastrophe? They're just setting up a no-lose situation for themselves. Putting all that big uh, global warming money in their pockets by selling their, their global warming what? 
Yeah, man, I, I wasn't doing well. And then I saw this thing on television where you can make millions of dollars on global warming with no money down. And now I'm making $50,000 a month for my house. Climatology is by definition the study of long-term climate trends, and it will be indeed many decades or longer before any definitive conclusions about even the existence of global warming, let alone its causes, can be determined to be true or false. Well, apparently, all the scientists disagree with her. But she has a radio show on the Disney Network, so she must know what she's talking about. probably the best advice we can offer news consumers these days. But for those who would rather buy in bulk, for those who prefer to be told what is right and who is wrong, there's always Fox News. Here's anchor Gretchen Carlson on Wednesday with White House Counselor Dan Bartlett. Dan, you talk about a hostile enemy obviously being Iraq, but hostile enemies right here on the home front. Yesterday, Senator Ted Kennedy proposing that any kind of a troop surge should mean that there should be congressional approval of that. Bartlett answered that he didn't view Senator Kennedy as a hostile enemy. Maybe so, but there's little doubt that for the Bush administration, Fox is friendly territory. We got more evidence of that on Thursday when somebody forgot to turn off a mic on Condoleezza Rice, and Reuters caught the secretary saying, quote, My Fox guys, I love every single one of them. It makes sense that as President Bush stumbles in the polls, the network that hitched itself to his fortunes will stumble too. And sure enough, in the last quarter of 2006, Fox News saw a 14% drop in its viewership and a 20% fall off in prime time compared to the previous year. Meanwhile, MSNBC's liberal countdown with Keith Olbermann gained audience share. Fox News is still by far cable's leader of the pack, but still, Rolling Stone contributor Matt Taibbi has noticed a sigh of relief on the part of a lot of media commentators. He wrote about it in his online column last month. Some of the commentators took the tack, saying that uh, what happened to Fox was, was a repudiation of their formula for securing an audience, that people were somehow tired of uh, hate media, tired of that kind of invective. Whereas, uh, you know, I think actually the opposite is true. I mean, some of the people that they lost market share to were of the same kind of shouting and hating style. People like Glenn Beck from CNN, Headline News, either that or they were simply the opposite political orientation. You know, Fox sort of became famous and and became a major media power by having a lot of shows like The O'Reilly Factor that focused heavily on demonizing a liberal enemy. And I think you started to have some shows from the opposite end of the spectrum, like Keith Olbermann's show on uh, MSNBC, which to some degree did the same thing in reverse for liberal audiences. Now, the formula uh, you referred to 
In your piece, you called Blame, Hate, Coalesce. Explain for me the dynamic of Blame, Hate, Coalesce. You aim for a very broad segment of the populace, say, uh, you know, middle class conservatives or middle American conservatives, and you um, do two things. You show them that their way of life is being threatened, and then you give them somebody who they can blame for their way of life being threatened. You know, so you fill their news with terrible and threatening news, and then you in the same broadcast, do something like show a lot of pictures of uh, gay people getting married on the steps of uh, the Massachusetts State House, And then in the end, it becomes sort of a team building exercise where people tune into that radio station, not so much to hear that news, but to hear other people like themselves tuned in so that they can feel like they're part of something, like part of a group. So a Fox News channel's formula is to find out what its audience is willing to hate and then feed them enough uh, material to make their blood boil. Right. Are, are you saying that others on the political left are doing essentially the same thing? Yeah, but there's there's a step in between there, too. I think what happened before there were shows for people on the left that did the same thing was that people who are not necessarily on the political left, but just not of that group, tuned into shows like O'Reilly and Michael Savage and found themselves sort of inadvertently lumped in to the enemy category and were offended. Uh, they may not have necessarily had a whole lot in common before that, but after a while, you get a group of people who do have something in common. They're all enemies of Bill O'Reilly, or they're all enemies of Michael Savage. And then for some canny media organization, all they have to do is craft an audience around that. And you get, you know, books like uh, Sweet Jesus, I Hate Bill O'Reilly. You get uh, all those books like Brainless about Ann Coulter. And then before you know it, you just have these two insoluble groups who just keep butting heads against each other and are terminally paranoid about each other's existences. Uh, the problem for me personally is that I have absolutely no credibility in this area because that's exactly what I do for a living. I mean, I'm I'm sort of an ad hominem expert for Rolling Stone. And I, I didn't include myself in this piece because I thought it would be pretentious to sort of write about myself as having participated in the destruction of the American political landscape. But, you know, I, like a lot of reporters and like a lot of op-ed columnists, uh, we're under a lot of pressure to sort of rile people up and create controversies. And that's what we do. Who's the victim in this ecosystem of hate versus hate? Well, I think we all are, especially the people who are the audiences of these shows. You know, and I've seen this in families. You know, you have one uncle who listens to Rush and another uncle who listens to uh, Air America and they don't talk to each other anymore. Um, people who are neighbors, you know, they're far more likely to, to go turn on the O'Reilly show or, or listen to, you know, whatever, you know, radio show that appeals to him than they are to go next door and talk to the neighbor who they think might be of, of an opposite political orientation. We've gotten to the point where we've instructed our audiences to really believe that they are the sum of their political beliefs, that if you are a follower of a certain political ideology, you can never under any circumstances mix with a person who doesn't believe in those things. And I, it's just not true. I mean, there's a lot more to all of us than the way we vote or, or what we believe in politically. It's an obvious truism, and it sounds pious to point that out. But the thing is, you never hear that on the news or in any of these shows. You never hear it said that, yeah, we disagree, but it's just not that big a deal in, in the end. And there's a reason why we, they don't say that, because that would spoil the entire formula. All right, Matt. Well, uh, thank you so much. Thanks very much, Bob. Matt Taibbi is a contributing editor for Rolling Stone magazine.
Now, we're, we're going to play it for you here. Now, we've got two or three egregious things in it that we want to talk about, and one at least funny thing. But as you uh, listen and watch this clip, listen for what Mona Sharon thinks uh, the job of journalists and entertainers is. Like, why she wants conservatives to become journalists or to go into movie making. Because that, I think, is the most interesting part. So here she is uh, speaking to her other loathsome conservative friends. Long time when I travel around the country is when people say, well, you know, how do we affect the country? How do we affect the culture? I will frequently say, rather than have your kids be businessmen, teachers, lawyers, many other things, have them either be journalists or movie makers. That's where we have, we have, we have no, almost nothing on, uh, in the culture. Bill O'Reilly was saying the other day, and this is so true, that you know, he went on um, the Colbert Report to be, to, as a lark in part, but also he said, you know, and it's so true, if you're cool, you're a liberal. But they are, they have all the cool shows, they are all the hip people, and to be a conservative is to be just a little bit unhip. And there's no reason that has to be so. Um, there, there are plenty of really smart, funny conservatives who need to get out there and present a product that will make fun of liberals. Well, Rush Limbaugh has done it. I mean, the, let's give credit where it's due. Um, he really has ridiculed them and uh, and, and used humor. Uh, but there has to be there has to be more of that. There, it has to be in the movies. And what Michelle was doing is terrific. Um, but um, but we need to recruit people. You know. We, Many years ago, um, a lot of uh, wealthy conservatives came together to fund a think tank in Washington because they felt that there were there were too few opportunities for conservative thinkers to get their work um, published and presented. And they created the Heritage Foundation, and it made a huge difference. Now they should get together and start a studio. All right, well, here's a couple of things. So going to journalism or going to movie making so you can make fun of liberals. Right. That's the reason to go into journalism? That's the reason to go into movie making? I mean, they so fundamentally misunderstand what the media is supposed to do because they're obsessed with the only thing they know how to do, John, which is propaganda. Exactly. It's propaganda, propaganda, propaganda. I mean, I just really, I rolled off... You know, I, I, I wrote in my, in my post, but I literally just couldn't stop laughing. It was the stupidest thing. Here you have, first we'll go into the other parts of, uh, of what she said, but you know, don't become businessmen. Don't, 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 you know, enter society. Don't become lawyers. Don't become doctors, right, or teachers. No, become movie makers. I mean, you know, it's like one half or one-tenth of a percent of people that go into movie making actually, you know, get like a weekly paycheck. You know, I, I, yeah, of course. It's I mean, you don't tell you don't tell people as movie making is a career choice uh, that that many people. You know, I, you know what they should do? They should become basketball players exactly. because because the NBA is too liberal. Um, so <laughs> be six seven. Yeah, exactly. Pray, pray, you know, and and. and and your kid will be six nine and, and sort of look like Magic Johnson, although, as Joe Biden said, they will be clean cut and well spoken. That's right. Instead of having your kid study hard and become a businessman, have him jump every day as high as he possibly can. <laughs> and I love the part where she's like, you know, there are cool and hip conservatives. I mean, then there's funny and smart ones like Rush Limbaugh. And, you she know, quoted, I believe, uh, Bill O'Reilly, um, uh, Rush Limbaugh, and probably Michelle Malkin. I mean, she referred right. to Michelle's doing great right. stuff. I assume that's Michelle Malkin. Yeah, she's lying. 
Lying as usual. Uh, we're talking to John Amato of CrooksAndLiars.com. The final thing on this, John, is, uh, you know, it's interesting how they operate. They don't think, hey, let's make great movies and then people will, you know, see what that we're right or anything like that. They think, let's do what we did before. Take really, really wealthy funders like that funded the Heritage Foundation, put a lot of money behind this. Whether it makes sense or not, who cares? Just put money behind it, and we'll spread our propaganda. Yeah, I mean, and the fundamental fact of being a journalist is to report the truth, right? To report news, what is the truth? It's not to report prop. In other words, it's not to insert. They complain that, you know, they have this fake liberal media bias, yet she's telling you to insert conservative bias into right. the news. It's insane. You know, and uh, look, and the other thing is, look, let's just, you know, hey, you want honesty? They praise the quote-unquote honesty, the faux honesty from Rush Limbaugh. Let's be honest now. There aren't a lot of really funny conservatives. There are some. No question. I mean, and you know what else? There aren't a lot of incredibly smart conservatives, by comparison. There are unquestionably some. And, uh, but the fact of the matter is, you know, uh, for all those years, the conservatives, they complain. Why do you think all the Hollywood pe the most creative people, uh, aren't conservative? Why are all the most creative people in journalism, the most thoughtful and concerned people in journalism, more likely uh, you know, to vote Democratic, even though, as we learned in their reporting over the last six years, uh, that doesn't appear to affect their reporting at all. And why, again, the conservatives complain there are too many liberal professors? I, I love that their whole line of attack and, and all the think tanks, all the smart people, the thinkers, and now they're big and scientists probably, too. Their complaint is too many of the really smart people are liberals, so something's wrong with society. It can't possibly be that our way of thinking, once you get really smart, is actually seems sort of wrong. So while I was putting this episode together, I was reminded of a period of time in my life that I'm not particularly proud of. And, and I realized, uh, well, I realize now in retrospect that I, I can kind of retroactively empathize with Republicans. I feel like during this period, I knew what it felt like to be a Republican, although I didn't know it at the time. So many of you know that uh, just about a month ago, I moved to the Washington, D.C. area. Before that, I was in Sacramento for my whole life, basically. And for about a year and a half before I moved, I wanted to move. And, and it, it just took me that long to get things in order to, to get myself out of there. But during that period, there was a short time of um, a couple of weeks or a month or, or somewhere in that uh, somewhere in that area, that I thought to myself that maybe I should go somewhere else. Maybe I wouldn't go to Washington. And sadly and, and embarrassingly, the reason for that thought was uh, fear, I guess. I mean, it, it really kind of boils down to that. And it's, as much as I don't like to admit it, that's that really is the crux of, of what it all comes down to and so of course you know as as you all are and i'm sure you assume about me 
that I'm, I'm quite a, a news junkie and I've been listening to political talk radio and reading political websites for a long time. And, uh, and anyone who ever talks about terrorism in this country, and especially the experts who seem to know what they're talking about, everybody always says the next terrorist attack uh, in this country, it's not a matter of if, but when. And, well, and where, I guess, specifically. So, to say that I had an actual fear of dying if I moved to Washington, assuming that there would be a major attack in this city, I think would be inaccurate. But I did think to myself, well, I don't, you know, there, there's nothing forcing me to go to Washington, so I could just pick somewhere else. And, um, you know, it's not like I particularly trust this government to protect me very well. And, you know, I thought, well, why, why put myself in a higher risk area? And, uh, and I, I will also admit, also very sadly, that some of this information came from, well, I, I mean, not information, but just speculation on, on when the next terrorist attack is going to be came from um, before I had any idea what or who they were. Uh, I, I believe, what's the website? World News Daily, Net News, Worldly Daily Propaganda to Make You Fear Your Neighbor. Whatever they, I mean, I think you know what I'm talking about. And, uh, you know, so they're a right-wing news site, and I actually didn't know it at the time. I just stumbled across a, um, a link, and it was linked to them. And, and so I started reading this article, and this guy said, well, I've... And it was, in retrospect, it's so silly, because he actually talks about his, uh, his insider knowledge on, um, I don't know, terrorism or security issues and... He has contacts inside the whatever, and he can't tell us where his information comes from, but he guarantees that within 90 days there will be a terrorist attack, most likely nuclear. You know, and so, like, so this is the kind of guy, and it just got me thinking, like, well, you know, why, um, why run the risk? I mean, I have no idea if this guy knows what he's talking about, but I've heard enough people for a long enough span of time saying, yeah, there will be another attack, and it'll be bad, and it could be worse, and we just have no idea. And so I thought, well, why put myself right in, uh, you know, right right on the bullseye? And, and then I guess, I don't know, I snapped out of it a little bit. I mean, obviously, like, it, uh, you know, I, I stopped thinking about it, you know, a couple of weeks went by, and I, I kind of changed my mind back and realized, well, you know, that's kind of stupid to worry about and you can't, uh, you can't live your life based on fear and you can't change what you're going to do because of what might happen or, you know, whatever. So just do what you want to do. And then more time went by and, you know, of course, 90 days went by and probably six months or nine months has gone by now. And, um, and of course, there's been no attack, and who knows 
how much there is to worry about or, or whatever. But now, with this great amount of distance between myself and that period of time when I thought about not moving to Washington, going somewhere else, that I might be just as happy or might not be as happy. Um, I don't well, it, it just it seems totally silly to me now that I ever thought of changing my plans based on pure speculation by someone who now turns out to be, you know, a crazy right-wing person, or, you know, sane people who say, well, yeah, we'll get attacked, but we have no idea when or where or how. Um, but now, but with all, with, the, with this great distance between now and then, looking back, I really realize that's what fear does to people. And, all, you know, although I was saying, I don't think that I ever actually feared dying. Uh, I, I just thought, why, why add unnecessary risk if I don't have to? But I think that basically comes down to essentially the same thing. Um, fear in one form or another. So it's, it's really kind of embarrassing that I ever thought that way. Especially because at the same time, I am well aware of fear tactics from you know the Republicans or the right wing, and how fear is the easiest way to control people and you know make them be submissive to your crazy plans or. Or, or whatever the situation is. And at the very same time, I was falling victim to it without even knowing. So now in this episode with talk about 24 and, you know, propaganda in the media and, and all of these things, I realized that even, well, not that I consider myself, you know, the, the brightest among us by any stretch, but, but even people who think they're kind of plugged in and, and aware of themselves and the world around them can be sucked into that kind of thinking without even knowing it. So I guess I'm proud to say that I, I never, my reaction was never, uh, you know, please take my liberties to uh, give me temporary security, but it still had an impact on me. It still made me think about changing, if not my way of life, like, you know, like changing our constitution, but changing my personal life and my personal future or uh, personal plans uh, based on essentially nothing. So I don't know if there's really a moral to this story. Uh, you know, maybe each one of you will take something different from it and, and use it as your own. I guess it just gave me a little perspective on maybe what your average uh, uh, Republican who's filled with, uh, you know, f reactionary fear uh, goes through on a daily basis and, and kind of the thought process that they have when they, uh, I, I guess, blindly support wars uh, against mythical enemies and... Uh, in, you know, anything to 
you know, rally to their strong protector rather than the the smart protector, I, I guess, is, is kind of what I would think, that, uh, you know, the, the left wing is certainly interested in being safe, but they'd rather do it the smart way, like, uh, you know, people who don't like us, maybe we should be nice to them so they don't hate us anymore, whereas maybe the other side would m more likely say, well, if they don't like us, then we should uh, bomb them into submission and, and, you know, well, you know how it all goes. But I, I think I think it really does, and of course I'm not even close to the first person to say it, but it really comes down to just kind of a fear-based uh, line of thinking leads to very dangerous places, or at the very least, illogical places. If I had chosen to go study abroad or something, it wouldn't have been dangerous for me. It, it just would have been silly. So you can take that for what it's worth. And from inside the Beltway and outside the border of Washington, D.C., yet probably still within the blast radius, this is the Best of the Left podcast coming from bestoftheleftpodcast.com, and I'll talk to you real soon. Oh